up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, John had prepared the way for Jesus. John had pointed Jesus out to the people as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John baptized Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, the text tells us that the Spirit descended like a dove and the Lord announced from the heavens that this Jesus is His beloved Son with whom and in whom He is well pleased. And immediately after this pronouncement of God's pleasure in His Son, the Holy Spirit drove that Son out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan assaulted Jesus with tests that were designed to cast doubt on the goodness of his Father. Basically, Satan in the wilderness came to Jesus asking, If your Father is so good, and if it's true that he is so pleased with you, why are you suffering in the wilderness like this? Why would a good father lead you into such a trial? Jesus, turn away from him. Turn away from his will. Turn to me, said Satan. I will be a better father to you than he has ever been. And now we know that's a lie. We know that's a lie. But you know what? That is still the temptation, the very same temptation that the enemy continues to assault us with every day of our lives. Even now, now it might not be as obvious as, as turn to me like it was in the wilderness for Jesus, but it's still turn away from God. Turn away from your Father. It's still turn towards something other than your father whether it's worldly affairs whether it's listen be known for something in your words and in your deeds other than your devotion to other than any sort of love for other than any worship to christ who we know is our great and precious savior our god is the greatest of fathers he is the most wonderful of lords he is the most loving of saviors. All others that the enemy would put in front of us are nothing more than cheap imitations that break more quickly than dollar store toys. Trading our heavenly Father for anything is always a terrible trade. And Jesus in the wilderness understood this and he rebuffed these tests. He rebuffed these lies of the enemy. And soon afterwards, he embarked on his public ministry. After this time of preparation, Jesus went out and began to preach. And what was his proclamation? What was his sermon? What was it that he preached everywhere he went? These words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the first words of John the Baptist in his ministry. These are the first words of Jesus in his. And along with Jesus' teaching, along with his preaching, he also had compassion on the crowds that came to him. We read it right just before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4. We see Jesus healing people of their diseases, Jesus healing people of their sicknesses, Jesus healing people of their afflictions. And all of this led to an absolute explosion of followers as Jesus' fame, the fame of Jesus, spread through all the land. And as great crowds followed him, 
Jesus went up onto the mountain. That's what Matthew tells us. He went up on the mountain. He sat down in order to teach everyone, to teach these crowds what it looked like for one to repent. And he described for them the characteristics of one who has actually bowed their knee to the king and therefore entered into the kingdom. You see, this is the context that the Sermon on the Mount is born out of. It is born out of the primary content of Christ's preaching, the message to repent and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it would be easy to read this first section, the Beatitudes, like many do, and assume that Christ is singling out a number of different groups and promising blessings to each group based uh, on their downtrodden and impoverished condition alone. However, that's not what the Beatitudes are. It is not a singling out of eight different groups who are blessed simply because they are in this condition of, of, impo- of poverty or downtroddenness. Instead, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes are an answer to the question that might arise among those who are hearing Christ preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, the question that might arise to the, in the minds of those who are sympathetic to Christ's call, okay, I want to repent, what does that look like? How do I do that? How do I know if I have done it? I don't know what shape that would take in a person's life. And so the Beatitudes are the answer to this question. How does one know if they've truly entered into the kingdom of heaven? What are the signs that one has truly repented and believed the message and believed the preaching of Christ? The answer? The Beatitudes. In these eight statements of blessedness, Jesus describes the disposition of or the virtues present in those who believe and respond to Christ's call for repentance. Here in the Beatitudes, again, we're not introduced to eight separate groups, but one and the same group, those who have entered into the kingdom of heaven. So last week, if you recall, we looked at the first statement of blessedness in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Remember it, look at it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we learned last week, if you recall, that the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty apart from the grace and the mercy of God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their complete and their total spiritual bankruptcy and their total spiritual destitution before God. They recognize their need to depend on Him. They recognize their need to depend on His grace on him, and on His mercy for salvation. Poverty of spirit is a poverty of pride in one's own self. A poverty of arrogance in one's own self. See, all of us, all of us are constantly tempted to believe and inaccurately assess ourselves to the degree that we can think that God values any innate goodness in us and by our goodness and by our good deeds and by our good works, we can somehow win the affection of and win the favor of God. The height of pride, this is the height of pride in spirit rather than what Jesus is talking about here, that is poverty of spirit. The height of pride in spirit is the idea that any of us, any one of us, could somehow enter into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of our good works. 
the, the height of pride in spirit is this idea of trusting in our own righteousness before God, believing that God would somehow look down on you or look down on me in favor because we have convinced ourselves in some way that I am good. This is the exact opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit. This is the very definition of being proud in spirit. It is the epitome of vanity and boasting to think that we could ever win the affection and salvation of God on our own. It is the embodiment of egomania and haughtiness to think that any of us could ever live up to God's glorious standard of perfect holiness. Those who would heed or hear or listen or obey Christ's call to repentance those who would want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, those who are citizens of the kingdom of Christ, are those who are convinced that before the Lord I have nothing. I am spiritually poor. I am impoverished before Him. Your pride is broken. Your dependence on your good works is broken. The poor in spirit are those who realize their helplessness and turn to the Lord for deliverance. The poor in spirit recognize that they have nothing in themselves to offer the Lord. They recognize that even the best of their deeds are as nothing before the Lord. The poor in spirit understands that we have nothing in us that deserves anything other than the just wrath of God. We recognize our desperate need for Christ's righteousness. We recognize our desperate need for Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins at the cross. The poor in spirit know that all we can do is beat our breast like the tax collector in Luke 18 and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all we can do. And this spiritual poverty, this recognition of our spiritual poverty will lead to a godly sorrow. And that's what Jesus captures in this next beatitude. This godly sorrow that arises out of this recognition of our poverty in spirit. And that's why what Jesus captures when he says this in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now it would seem counterintuitive, right? That those who mourn are blessed. However, mourning is what presses us to seek God and our comfort in God alone. It is in Him and Him alone, our God, in which true comfort is both found and enjoyed. Now listen, the mourner in this context is not simply someone who experiences times of deep grief, deep sadness, and deep affliction. The mourner is not someone who simply experiences deep sorrow or grief, whether it's at the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a fortune, or the loss of something else. It's not someone who mourns simply for the sake of mourning. But it is one who grieves at the effects and the repercussions of sin. Whether you're looking out at the world and you see the devastation that sin has wrought in the creation, or whether it is the sin in your own life. The mourner is the one who sees sin and grieves over it. 
Again, this is not a description of all who mourn regardless of what they are mourning for. This is a description of the godly mourner who grieves over their sin. Now we get a good picture of this, right, in uh, the narrative of Lazarus in John chapter 11, for example. There are, are a number of people mourning in this story. But only one of them qualifies as a godly mourner. After hearing the, about the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus arrives in Bethany and he makes his way to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary, she ran out to him and she fell at his feet, saying in John eleven thirty two, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you feel the mourning? Can you feel the grief that she is experiencing over the death of her brother? When someone we love dies... It's a grievous experience for us, as it was for Mary. She is devastated by the death of her brother, and she is weeping at the feet of Jesus as a result. But John eleven thirty three 33 reveals this, that Jesus was also mourning. It tells us this in John eleven thirty three: When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. See, Jesus also mourned over the death of Lazarus. And looking out at the grief that this death had caused to the entire community, the text tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, what does that mean? The HCSB clarifies it, saying Jesus was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. What was Jesus angry about? He was angry about the devastation that sin had brought about. Why had Lazarus died? Lazarus died because sin has entered into creation. And since the entrance of sin into creation, it has effectively touched everything. Far-reaching consequences all over the globe. Every tear of grief since the fall of man to this day comes as a result of sin's destructive power. And Jesus, surveying this scene, seeing the weeping, seeing the grief, seeing the anguish, is angered and provoked in his spirit's spirit by the wickedness and the result of sin in creation. And Jesus is the one who mourns according to the intention of this beatitude. Whereas the family wept and mourned over the death of a loved one, Jesus mourned over and was angered by the sin that brought about his death. And that's what those who mourn do. They mourn over the sin of the world. And in a more specific way, unlike Jesus who never sinned, we as mourners mourn over the sin in ourselves. The mourner can relate to the experience of Job, right? When Job was confronted by the perfect holiness of God. I mean, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're pretty good for a while, but when confronted, when actually confronted by the holiness, the perfect holiness of God, Job could do nothing other than despise himself. Saying this in 42, verses 5 and 6. This is Job saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. 
Now, now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself in dust and ashes. That's a mourner. The mourner can identify with David as he poured out his, his sorrow in Psalm 51, verses 3 to 5, saying, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Both of these men, David and Job, in their spiritual poverty before the Lord, experienced a deep and heartfelt grief, a racking inner agony over their sin. And they experienced a repentant sorrow and mourning for their sinful deeds. And they lamented their inner corruption. They lamented any acts of disobedience they might have committed before the Lord. And this is what mourning is in this context. Those who truly understand the wickedness of their sin mourn and experience godly, repentant grief over it. It is the mourner who displays in their mourning a high and exalted view of God's grace. It is the mourner who understands that the salvation of the wicked, wretched sinner such as ourself is completely and totally a gift given to us by our great, wonderful, glorious, and merciful God. Because we understand the wickedness and the sinfulness of sin. We understand its filth. We understand its consequences. Because we understand that God absolutely hates and abhors sin. It is the mourner who most appreciates and praises the Lord for their salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because you recognize just what it is you've been saved from. And those who don't see themselves as sinners never mourn. The mourner grasps the fact that we, that they, that you have sinned in the most grievous ways. That you have no leg up on anyone else. That all of us stand on equal footing before the Lord. You understand in many ways throughout the course of your life and I understand in the course of mine, even in the present, even up to the present moment, we sin in thought, we sin in word, we sin in deed. In many ways, sin is like the very air that we breathe. It's always with us. The mourner understands just how natural it is for our hearts to lust how natural and easy it is for our hearts to run after sin. How easy it is for us to love ourselves in idolatrous ways than to submit and love our God to whom all praises due. We understand how frequently we suppress the knowledge of God revealed to us in His Word for lies. And as a result of this honest assessment of who we are, the mourner grieves. And we wonder just how it is that God could ever love or save someone like us. And know this, you are not alone in your sense of this mourning. 
Christians all throughout the centuries have grieved deeply over the depths of their sin and sinfulness. Christians throughout the centuries have grieved to the degree that many true saints could almost and have actually doubted their own salvation as a result. The mourner stands with the great Robert Murray McShane's famous assessment of himself when he said that the seeds of all sins are in my heart. The mourner understands that sin dwells in our will. Sin dwells in our intellect. Sin has created a rupture and a chasm between God and man that is so deep, that is so wide, that no human could ever bridge that gap on their own. And so we grieve and we mourn. We grieve and we mourn over the ease with which we despise God's good and gracious rule over us. We mourn the ease with which we toss our great, wonderful Lord aside in favor of our own sinful desires. We mourn over the fact that even in the face of the many wonderful and numerous blessings that God has dispensed upon us who believe, that we have been saved, that we have been adopted, that we have been declared innocent, that we have been declared righteous in the sight of God, in the face of such unprecedented and unspeakable blessings, we are still engaged in a formidable struggle, an intense war against the sin that still dwells in our flesh, and many times we lose. We mourn over the fact that in everything we do, even in our righteous deeds, Deeds like prayer, deeds like worship, deeds like scripture study, study, deeds like sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Our indwelling sinfulness is always right there, pulling at us, beckoning us away from our Lord. And at many times, we hear, and we heed, and we listen to its call, don't we? As the Heidelberg Catechism so aptly puts it, even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And so, we mourn. We mourn over the fact that we are like so, so many times like the fool that is spoken of by Solomon in the Proverbs. You remember Proverbs 26, 11, when he wrote this? Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. And the Apostle Peter in the New Testament quotes that proverb and adds another one to it in 2 Peter 2.22 says, And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We mourn over the fact that we return to the same pile of vomit over and over again, don't we? The same mud pit of sin, we keep going to it and rolling around in it. Many times we return to the same sin over and over and over again. How easy it is for us to eat that vomit. How easy it is for us to roll around in that filth. And that's the picture of sin in Scripture, right? It's meant to elicit this revul revulsion in us. It ought to hit our gag reflex. But it often doesn't. And so we mourn. What we see in our culture is not mourning over sin, but a celebration of sin. See, this idea of mourning over our sin has fallen out of favor among many. 
It has even fallen out of favor among many who would claim to love and serve Jesus. And in its place, we have been sold the idea that sin is not something that we should really be mourning over. In fact, it's something that we should be celebrating. And all who join in are promoting and celebrating sin. And sin is not a blessing. Sin is a curse. A curse that spreads out among the people, that finds its way into every nook and cranny of creation. And so when we go out and we use the words pride after sin, whatever pride you want to you be proud of, you are spreading the curse. And that's a sin to be mourned over especially in light of the fact that we are called to be those who expose darkness. That is how we as believers who mourn bless this world. We love this world. We love the people in this world. We would call every single one of them to the saving faith in, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the darkness does not like the light. And so they will react But to push people on in their sin is an evil deed. It's a spreading of a curse. So sin is something we mourn over. Even though culture tells us that sin is a concept we ought to leave behind and instead encourage people to become their true selves or to be true to their self. As the culture tells us that we ought to not tell people about sin and to mourn over sin, we should never talk about that. We should instead encourage people in their choice of whatever lifestyle they desire. Again, this is the opposite of mourning. Mourning is the recognition of the depth and evil of our sin and grieving over it in repentance. And according to Jesus, it isn't the one who suppresses knowledge of sin and runs into the direction of their preferred lifestyle, fooling themselves into believing that God accepts them as they are. Jesus says that these are not the ones who are blessed. What, is this t- what does our text tell us? Who are the blessed? The blessed are those who recognize their complete and total depravity, who recognize their sinfulness before God. These are the ones that Jesus calls blessed. Now, you might be in the same boat as the Apostle Paul, mourning over your inability to obey when it is your desperate desire to do so. Is anyone else in here like me? I want to do the will of God, and I keep failing. It's a desperate desire to do what God commands us to do, but there is this internal conflict in us, right? Hear Paul's internal conflict. Now, I I was in youth ministry long enough that I had kids come to me and quote Romans 7 without ever having read it. Christian kids who come and quote this even though they've never gotten to the book of Romans. They basically stopped after Genesis 12 or 13 every time they started their Bible reading plan. But listen to Paul's conflict. He says this, I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! What an internal battle, right? I want to do good. I love God. I love His law. I want more than anything to be like Christ. I want more than anything to obey His word, but every time I try, I end up doing the opposite. I end up sinning. I end up falling short. In my heart of hearts, says the Apostle Paul, I know that God's law is good. I know it's the way to abundant life. I know that it's my joy and my delight to live in obedience to the Lord, but I just don't seem to have the ability to carry it out, and so I mourn. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now you might be asking, you probably are asking, and you'd be right to ask, how can it be, everything that you've said, how can this be a blessing? How can it be a blessing to mourn in this way? Well, look at what this mourning led the Apostle Paul to in the very next verses of Romans 7. Listen to what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mourning over his sin led Paul to an increased love and an increased gratitude to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the blessing. This is the biggest of blessings. You see, we live in a world that does all it can to eliminate the concept of mourning over sin from its vocabulary, and but all that does is lead humanity to ever-increasing depths of despair as they follow and walk in their courses of sin. And in one of the most spectacular of lies, the world attempts to paint sin as the path to happiness. Now, if you've ever walked down roads of sin, you know and I know that sin never leads to increased happiness. Sin always leads to despair. It always leads to hopelessness. And eventually, if you don't mourn over it, it will lead to your eternal death. So really, when it comes down to it, who are the blessed? The blessed are those who recognize their sinful state and as a result are driven to the grace of Christ instead of those who run headlong into sin and suppress their guilt, deceived into thinking that it leads to happiness but only end up in increasing misery and gloom. Sure, we can deceive ourselves for a time, right? But the bill for sin always comes due. Blessed are those who mourn for they, and they alone, will be comforted. How will mourners be comforted? They will be comforted with pardon from sin and peace with God. They will be comforted in the end when God himself wipes away every tear from their eyes. They will be comforted because in their godly sorrow, their heart turned to God who comforts all who come to him. He comforts us by forgiving us of our sin. He comforts us by delivering us from wrath. He comforts us as, by strengthening us as we grow up into the image and likeness of Christ. And he comforts us with an assurance of salvation in his word when we read it. An accurate understanding of the evil of sin leads to a greater grasp and a 
glorifying of God's grace as we hear God say in his word, listen to these words, and these apply to those who mourn over their sin and who come to Christ for salvation. These words apply to you where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, the joy, there's a joy in recognizing our sinfulness and mourning over it. There is a joy in confessing our sin, and it is captured in Psalm 32. One of the greatest examples of this is Psalm 32, one of my absolute favorites. Here we will see an overview of the mourner who is comforted. Now, David, in this text... This, uh, it, it arises out of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see we are given the narrative of David and Bathsheba. You remember that story? You remember David on his rooftop while all of his men are out to war and there is a woman bathing on another roof and David just couldn't stop himself from looking. And in his looking, didn't, it didn't stop at looking. He ended up calling this woman into his, into his palace getting her pregnant, and then having Uriah, her husband, killed on the battlefield. Now, you got to know that Uriah was not just any man. When David was running for his life from Saul, Uriah was one of the mighty men who followed him and protected David with his life. The levels of deceit, the levels of duplicity, the levels of shame that David ought to have felt for what he did to his friend Uriah, who devoted his life to David, ought to have consumed him. But we see in 2 Samuel 11, verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. She lamented. You know who's left out of that lamentation? David. David didn't lament. David concealed it. And the text tells us, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so the Lord in chapter 12, we're going to get to Psalm 32, the Lord in chapter 12 sent a prophet named Nathan to David. And Nathan said this to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger, the text tells us, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And in verse 13, David cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And out of this comes Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, David contrasts 
the time when he held on to his sin and refused to mourn over it and lament over it and grieve over it. And he contrasts that with the confession of sin and the mourning over it. And you see in this psalm that it is quite clear that he experiences the blessing of God as he confesses his sin and mourns over it, not when he holds on to it in silence. So look at verse uh, 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David says there are four things that are given to a blessed man. The first is that your transgression is covered. The idea here is that your rebellion is taken away or transgression is forgiven. Two, the second thing is whose sin is covered, meaning this, uh, this idea of sin here is missteps and mark missing whose missteps and mark missing are taken away or removed from before the eyes of the judge. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, meaning who the Lord does not count or hold against him any of the charges or any of the guilt of his sin. And four, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The idea here is who does, this is the one who doesn't fool themselves, doesn't excuse, doesn't rationalize, or doesn't defend themselves in their sin. What a blessing that is, isn't it? Is it not a blessing to have mourned over your sin to a degree that you bring it to the Lord and you ask for his forgiveness and he gives you these four wonderful things? Your rebellion taken away, your mark missing removed, no charges or guilt, and you are... All of your rationalization for sin is taken away. This is, this is the picture of the blessed. This is the result of those who mourn and bring their sin to the Lord. Now, what happens to those who don't do this? So here's the contrast, right? The blessed are not the ones who follow the course of sin and who live in the course of sin. The blessed are the ones who mourn over it and bring it to God. Because look at verses 3 and 4. Here we see the grief that comes in the lives of those who don't mourn. Listen, look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried as by the heat of summer. See that? David, for a time, deceived himself into silence. That's the first line, when I kept silent. And as a result of that, his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. He was burdened. He was weighed down by a spiritual dryness and emptiness. Why? Day and night, verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. God was disciplining his son David because of his sin. And in Hebrews, we realize and recognize that this is a blessing. This is a blessing of David. And David heeded this blessing. In Hebrews 12, verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What a blessing! And because the Lord's hand was heavy upon him, in verse 4, his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now this is a physical fatigue. 
This is physical repercussions and ramifications for his sinfulness. So there was a spiritual impact to his lacking of confession of sin, and there was a physical impact to his not confessing his sin. Now, if you had to contrast the two, which of these is blessed? Which of these is blessed? The one who followed the course of their sin and felt the spiritual dryness and the physical fatigue and weakness and the heavy hand of God upon them or the one who mourned over their sin, confessed it and experienced the comfort of God's forgiveness. And David recognizes that these are the two options that are open to him. He can either be blessed or he can live in grief and the grief of guilt. And so in verse 5, we see the gladness of David's confession. Look at verse 5. And this is the contrast to verse 3. When he kept silent, and now when he acknowledges. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And listen, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When it says, I acknowledged my sin, he says, what he's saying here is, I didn't excuse it. I didn't try to rationalize it. I didn't try to defend it. I agreed with the Lord and I saw my sin for what it was. Dirty, filthy, rotten, heinous sin. And, for, and two, I did not cover my iniquity. Not only did, not, <clears throat> did I try uh, avoid excusing it or rationalizing it, but I didn't try to hide it. I didn't conceal it. Because that's enslavement. I gave it to God for his covering. Verse 3, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, meaning I sought the Lord's forgiveness, knowing that in my mourning over sin, that he would comfort me if I brought it to him. And he was right. All of this resulted in, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is the comfort that arises in the hearts and lives of those who mourn. And in light of this reality, verse 6, this is what he says to all of us. Therefore, in response to what you have just learned about blessing and grief, therefore let everyone who is godly offer to you at a time, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And John, the apostle, says uh, very, something very similar in John, 1 John 1, 9. Says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any greater blessing than that? And so David here, like John, says, Listen, offer prayer to him now. Run to him now. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Meaning, these overwhelming afflictions, if you run to the Lord, this overwhelming sin that is in your life, all of it can be forgiven. They will not overtake anyone who runs to the Lord and acknowledges and confesses and mourns over their sin. They will be comforted. How? Look at the next verse, 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, meaning you cover me, you keep watch over me in this affliction, and you surround me with the freedom of forgiveness. What a blessing. Let God be your covering. Let the Lord 
comfort you. Go to him in confession. Acknowledge your sin. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to conceal it. Run to him as a mourner and he will comfort you. And he instructs us in verse 8 to this very end. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The idea here is stop submitting to the internal temptation to cover your sin. Don't be like an stubborn animal. A stubborn animal that lacks understanding. A stubborn animal that needs curbing. A stubborn animal that wanders away at every opportunity. Keep confessing your sins to the Lord. Because, verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. So again, there's a contrast here, right? Do you want to be comforted by the Lord? Confess and mourn over your sin. Because if you keep running down the path of it, says here, your sorrows will increase and amplify. But steadfast love surrounds those, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. There's the comfort again. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And how do you show your trust for the Lord? Confess your sin to him. In verse 11, as a result of the acknowledging, as a result of the confessing, as a result of the forgiving, the results of your mourning? Remember, we started this by saying, blessed are those who mourn, right? And mourning is the recognition of your sinfulness, grief over that sinfulness, and then Jesus saying that you're blessed and you will be comforted as a result of that. Now here it is. The results of those who truly mourn over their sin. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So it's counterintuitive in closing. It is counterintuitive. We don't think mourning is something that leads to joy, do we? We don't see mourning as something that brings us into ever-increasing degrees of delight or comfort. But the text is clear. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that comfort is the forgiveness of your sin by grace through faith in Christ, the forgiveness of your sin as you confess that sin to our Lord and Savior, and a gladness in the Lord as we recognize that His grace is far more unbelievably amazing than we could have ever imagined. As a re we rejoice in the fact that based on the finished work of Christ, we are righteous as we come to him in faith and he clothes us with his righteousness so the Lord sees him and his righteousness when he looks at us and shouts for joy because we recognize that because based on the finished work of Christ, we are made upright in heart by the Lord. So, my fellow brothers and sisters, the words of Christ are true. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Lord, we praise you this morning. And we live in a world that is consistently peppering our minds with lies. And in so many ways, 
we have given in to those lies. And we've followed our sins down their path or we've celebrated things that uh, our Lord Jesus explicitly declares as sinful. And I ask that you would, by your Spirit, convict us of those things and bring us to the place where we fall on our knees before you in absolute and utter mourning over our sin. And as we do so, I pray that you would fill our spirits with the results of your promise. Comfort, rejoicing, gladness, because as we confess our sins to you, we are given the grace of seeing Jesus in ever-increasing measure and understanding that in and through Christ our sins are forgiven. And there is no greater comfort than knowing that we are in your hand as a result of Christ's work. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.